Welcome to Religion for Life. This is a program at the intersection of religion and public life and at the intersection of religion and social justice. I'm John Shuck. With me is Anthony Flacavento uh, with SCALE, Sequestering Carbon, Accelerating Local Economies. That's your business. That is. It's a consulting business to help uh, rural communities in particular, but uh, uh, rural and urban communities around the country launch local economy, sustainable development type initiatives, including work around farming and food systems, but not limited to that. And this is um, and this is something that's a continuation of what you've been doing uh, for a while with the uh, sustainable sustainable development. In many respects, it certainly is. It's a, a I started Appalachian Sustainable Development back in 1995 with a small group of people. And the origins for ASD were really a group of people in our region, in southwest Virginia and east Tennessee, coming together saying, you know, the environmentalists are always fighting the economic developers. The uh, pro-labor union people are always at loggerheads with the business. And uh, the net result of that is we have still a lot of uh, economic problems, unemployment, underemployment, and a lot of environmental problems from resource extraction and pollution and other things. We said, you know, there's got to be another way to do this. That, that was sort of the birth of Appalachian Sustainable Development, which at the time in the mid-90s was one of the first, it was the first sustainable development group in Appalachia that I'm aware of, and really one of the first in the country that was focused on practical solutions to this conundrum of always sort of people's welfare and the environment being pitted against uh, kind of big business and industry. And so over the years, uh, ASD, of course, focused, most people know, on uh, two main things, on food and farming uh, initiatives, creating healthy local food systems in multiple ways, and um, on sustainable forestry and wood products. And then a third program emerged about halfway through uh, my time there, which was uh, school-based gardening and outdoor classrooms. So that was kind of ASD. Uh, and ASD still continues to this day doing great work. Um, myself, I just, after 15 years of that, I was ready to move on. And um, the, the work of scale is very similar. I'm lucky I don't have to worry about writing grants and fundraising anymore. Mm-hmm. I just have to get people to to retain me and employ me. But uh, essentially, I'm taking the lessons learned from those years at ASD, plus collaborating with many other exemplary, innovative groups around this region and around the country. I was very lucky to meet people doing these kinds of dynamic local economy initiatives all around the country. And sort of wrapping that all up into a package of uh, training, technical assistance, um, some work on design and planning. Some of the groups I work with are at the very first stage of just thinking that they need something else, that they mm-hmm. need something different or more. Uh, they It might be as simple as trying to launch a farmer's market in a very small rural community. It might be much more ambitious about a kind of a multi-pronged uh, economic development strategy that will build more local wealth and preserve the ecosystem at the same time. But whatever it is, I find myself engaging with communities uh, who want, who are committed to doing something in their in their town or their county or their their region, uh, and they want to do it um, in this way that that is, as some people call, triple bottom line, where businesses do make money, the usual bottom line, but that there's social benefit, uh, improvements in equity, improvements in in people's health and well-being, and there's ecological benefit. So that kind of triple bottom line approach is what I'm. 
trying to foster and encourage and help communities build the capacity to do on their own. And and as when I was looking at the website for scale, it looked to be that you you started this. I was wondering if this was in response a little bit to the uh, crisis of 2008 and the economic system uh, that is starting to shake at the global level. In in one sense, yes, but really. It, it's a little bit longer standing to that. You could probably say my whole adult life is in response to what I consider is an ongoing economic, um, if not crisis, sort of an economy with um, some fundamental flaws in its um, in its belief system. The people who've guided it, people like Milton Friedman and his many, many um, uh, students who've been so influential in in our own economic policy as well as economic policy all around the world. The the basic flaw is simply this, a belief in growth, mm -hmm. that growth is uh, possible indefinitely, that is to say, not like personal growth, uh, not growth in relationships, but growth, growth in the sense of growth. expanded output of products and services. And that that – so first of all, that growth just can continue and will continue indefinitely. And secondly, that um, growth will generally take care of uh, enough people, if not absolutely everybody, the vast, vast majority of people. So that's a, a two-pronged belief. And then there's a third element that's emerged maybe in the last 30 years, which is that – uh, the best way to achieve that growth, remember growth is the key, mm -hmm. it's the key to broad prosperity, and it doesn't really, if we let the market kind of work its magic, it will take care of any sort of uh, side problems or externalities, as the economists call them. The magic uh, but, of the invisible hand. The magic of the invisible hand basically takes care of that. And that the then the third notion is the way to achieve that growth is through uh, minimally, if not completely, unregulated, sort of unfettered capitalism. And um, I think there, long before the 2008 crisis, there was plenty of evidence for many, many years for much of the world that although growth has created dramatically more wealth in the sense of income uh, among not just a, a small cadre at the top, but a lot of people around the world, that it has never, this global capitalism has never fundamentally dealt with these other two problems, that there are ecological damages that that accrue, that accumulate, mm -hmm. and that a lot of people are left out. Those have been longstanding. That's not a new thing. So my response to those problems really started when I was working for the church, you know, 30 years ago to try to deal with these at some level of teaching. Mm -hmm. And then when I started ASD, my idea was, let's see if we can create a local example that doesn't buy that assumption, uh, but can actually demonstrate a different approach to economy that creates uh, more environmental and social good than bad. That was kind of the idea. So scale is a continuation of a much longer standing sense that we just are on an inevitable crash, collision course, excuse me, with, with ecological limits. You quoted uh, there's an article that you wrote or a blog entry um, called Wall Street and the New Economy. Yeah, that there's a paragraph I just want to read. It was, it was I found it very interesting. It was the end. It said Wall Street lost two trillion dollars over the past few weeks, nearly twenty thousand dollars for every household in this country. If there really was that much wealth to go around, we'd all be rich. But it isn't real. What's real is the three point seven acres of productive land per person that remains on our planet. A century ago, we had fourteen acres per person. Now it's three point seven. This land is the true foundation of our wealth. If accelerating climate change 
and the Wall Street debacle have taught us anything, it should be that we'd better forget our capital and use our labor to restore the shrinking base of land and build communities of modest but real wealth. I was impressed with that. And I'm impressed that you quoted somebody in that article too, James Howard Kunstler, who um, I often read his Monday mm -hmm. program. In fact, it was probably a few years ago in 2006 that I watched a film called The End of Suburbia mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that changed my thinking. I had kind of an idea, as naively, that progress upward and onward forever and forever, Star Trek technology, right, right. all of this kind of thing. And the idea that we are peaking in um, oil production globally or at that, or at that level, climate change, all of these things are causing us to, that, that, that future of progress isn't likely. Right. And we need to go a whole new way about it. And I found it very depressing. And so I'm thinking, uh, I don't, at the scale of it, and I'm speaking about your, your uh, organization here called Scale, what about a scale? How, how, what are we going to do with 7 billion people? Oh, can no, we I mean, do that's... this locally, organically? Can we, can we do this? Or, or is it going to be just small sections? Well, I think that um, fundamental to this is a new understanding of prosperity and what it means to be so-called well-off. You, you often hear now it's said that this current generation, that's the age of my children in their 20s or thereabouts, um, is likely to be the first generation in, I think it's uh, a century or more in the U.S., maybe in, maybe in a couple of centuries, that isn't, quote, better off than their parents. And what that means is materially, of course. Mm -hmm. And th the irony of all this is that as we've We've done two things. We've put a lot more people on the planet. So I, I sometimes say, and I did in the talk to Jenny, that at the founding of this country, we had what Herman Daly called an empty world economy. There was just very few people relative to the scale and scope of the resources, less than a billion. And now with coming up on 7 billion, and most everybody uh, who's a demographer would say we'll hit between 9 and 10 billion minimally before the population kind of stabilizes. So we have a lot more people, but we've also very, very successfully sold this idea of increased personal consumption. And of course, for the very poor and the poor, there does have to be increase in the food calorie intake and clean water utilization and some degree of energy use. All of that is part of it. But we've sold the basic notion, which... Uh, China and Brazil and India and other uh, very populous developing countries have bought, which is that everybody can and should have essentially unlimited amounts of stuff. What's ironic is that we are less and less happy once we, we pass a certain threshold of affluence. And um, that shouldn't surprise us, given that we also have this streak in our culture that says, you know, what's really important is relationships. What's really important is family. What's really important is a connection to community and your place and your land. That's still a very American sort of notion. And yet it has sort of been overwhelmed by, by this idea that the way out of economic problems is growth and the way out of personal problems is more stuff, more material stuff. And so we've structured an economy that is in fact completely dependent on all of us consuming more constantly. That's what we, that's, we don't know how to build an economy that is recession proof except to get people to buy more. The entire conversation could be reduced to that. We've got to buy more stuff in order to get businesses back to work. What about imagining an economy that's based much more on self-reliance, on frugality, on uh, slower cycles of production and consumption, uh, on lower um, overall 
uh, intake of resources, including calories. We consume something like 35% more calories than we did two generations ago, and, and our health problems reflect that. Um, the notion that we could have an economy that meets human needs better and the ecosystem and protects and restores the ecosystem simultaneously while it not being oppressive is is a new notion because again um, I quote David Corton who says we've bought this idea that our choices are two repressive communism or rapacious capitalism and if we have to choose between those two we're gonna pick the rapacious capitalism even with all its problems we've got to get beyond that idea Myself and others who are pushing us to get beyond it, we don't really know what this new world and this new economy would look like. Mm -hmm. We're all kind of experimenters at local and regional levels who increasingly are talking to each other and learning from each other, promoting public policy that we think would support these kinds of things. But the truth of it is we don't know that it's possible to build an entire national and global economy based on healthy, relatively self-reliant local communities. What I feel we do know is that the the path that we're on and trying to get back on to get out of this recession, which is, again, unlimited growth through sort of unfettered global capitalism. And increasing debt. And increasing debt, because that absolutely is part of it, and, in, and constantly increasing levels of consumption is, is ecologically simply an impossibility. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and I'm speaking today with Anthony Flaccavento. You said a, a phrase that is live into a new way of thinking rather than think into a new way of living. I can get into that myself, think myself into a rut, not sure right. what to do. Absolutely. And your solution is just get out there and do it, be the new thing. We don't know what it's going to be, but we know it's going to be local. Right. And we know it has to be ecologically sustainable. Right. So plant a garden. Yes. And, and what, what, what else? I'm, I'm a person who might have a career like I do. I was a radio announcer and then a minister. I mean, I, since I grew up on a farm, I haven't worked an honest day in my life. It's all about <laughs> ideas. And so uh, I live in the suburbs. How uh, I'm basically, I'm, you know, I'm all part of the big box global economy. Sure, sure. So planting a garden, shopping at the local farmer's market, or, or joining a CSA or some sort of local food effort are two sort of obvious and relatively both simple and pleasurable ways to start. There's many more. You can start looking at your whole household budget, and every time something comes up, you can ask yourself, can I buy that from a local vendor? Or do I need to go to, dare I say it, Walmart, Lowe's, Target? Uh, we have that conversation in our house constantly, and basically, uh, although we sometimes fall down on this, the vast majority of the time, our first couple of um, instincts and efforts are to try to find it from a local hardware company, a local building supplier, a local uh, installer of um, HVAC or energy equipment. I mean, the thing is that if we want healthy local economies, we're not going to get there simply by um, buying into Walmart's idea that it's going to address food deserts and buy organic and local. We're going to get there by building a broad base of local businesses. So I think another way of acting into a new way of thinking that's really sometimes frustrating, sometimes doesn't get you what you want, but is to start always saying, who can I get that from that I know or that I could yet to know? Who can I get that from where if I had a problem, I wouldn't be dealing with headquarters in Houston, I would be dealing with a local vendor. And that's true of products we need, 
way beyond food. It's true of services that we need. I mean, it's incredible to me how often uh, progressives and liberals immediately turn to the web for, say, you know, a T-shirt or a bag or a recording or a book or all of that. And it's like, well, now, wait a minute. If we're going to build this new economy, why aren't we trying to do that locally? And if those businesses don't exist locally or if they're rather pathetic because they've been kind of beaten down, well, mm -hmm. that's an economic opportunity that maybe we can help create. So I think there's actually – if if a, a single goal for an ordinary person was be to localize the economy of your household, that not in a purist sense, not in a way that you get totally hung up about, but in a serious sense, that could have profound impacts both – ecological, but probably even more in terms of enabling, supporting, and growing a local business base. Local businesses, whether they're farmers or uh, a local record store or a building supply, are not by definition good, but they tend to be more responsive to local concerns and issues. They tend to be because they can't escape that the way a big chain can escape it. They don't. They have the roots. They have the relationships. They go to the same churches. They shop at the same stores. And of course, Michael Schumann and others have shown you also get all these economic multipliers between 30% and 90% and more dollar turning in the community when you buy from a local versus a chain or a franchise. So there's countless reasons to do it. But that's one way to do it. And then, of course, there's many other things. There's taking stock of your energy footprint and starting to think, again, how can I both procure my energy closer to home, but more fundamentally, how can I just consume a whole lot less fossil fuels? That's a tough thing. We're a fossil fuel dependent mm -hmm. society with fossil fuel dependent communities with that lack public transportation, it's tough, especially in rural areas, it's tough. But there are emerging things that are making that more feasible, and that's where people need to be looking. So um, talking about uh, what is sustainable development? I, mean, I hear that word, people, in fact, I even saw an advertisement for BP saying how they're all sustainable. Right, I'm right, thinking right. I'm a little suspicious. Right, sure. So what, uh, when, you, when you talk about being sustainable, what... So let me let me answer it three ways, and I know I, I take too long to answer all these questions. First of all, the, the term sustainable has been sort of – it's entered the vernacular and the vocabulary. So now people often use it, but it's mostly used as we'll be doing the same thing tomorrow. We'll be around. So a sustainable business is one that makes enough money that it will be here 10 years from now. That's only a very small piece of it. The general definition that's used is that sustainable development is development that meets the needs of present generations without compromising the ability of future generations mm -hmm. to meet their needs. So that's kind of the simplest and I think pretty understandable. At ASD, we developed our own sort of a little more complex but a little more precise definition. And we said that sustainable development is usually, first of all, uh, development that is locally rooted, not local exclusively, but locally rooted, this business idea. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, and fundamentally, that it fits within the ecosystem, whatever that ecosystem is. It's the ecosystem of, of uh, the Appalachian mountain communities is very different from the ecosystem in uh, arid New Mexico, but mm -hmm. fits within the ecosystem. Thirdly, that it adds value to local resources without degrading them. So that idea that our forests, our farmlands, our lakes and streams, whatever it is, that we figure out ways that we get the maximum economic potential from them without actually reducing their capacity over the long haul. Um, and then lastly, that it, it 
lasts indefinitely. So those are that's kind of our working definition. So it's local, it fits within the ecosystem, it adds value to our natural resources without degrading them, um, and, and lastly, that it will last for many, many generations to come. Speaking with Anthony Flacavento, who was... As, as a business, a consulting firm called mm-hmm. uh, SCALE, the acronym for Sequestering Carbon, Accelerating Local Economies. And we're talking about local economies, talking about local ecology, thinking about the metaphor of a house, keeping one's house in order, Earth as, Earth as our home. We, uh, as we might treat our own home, we want to keep it in good repair for future generations, uh, not use resources that would, would end up destroying the home, and recognizing that we all ultimately live on the same home. Mm-hmm. Now, there are forces that seem to go opposite against what we're doing. We're up against a lot of forces that seem to want to uh, say that sustainable development or local economies and almost even work against them. How can we be uh, politics of love, sustainability, ecology? How does that relate together? Yeah, it's a kind of a new notion that I'm still playing around with in my mind. Um, First of all, we've kind of redefined love in the society as being first romantic and sexual in nature, which, of course, is a piece of love. Um, And secondly, as something that is totally at the feeling level. And I was on Wendell Berry's farm as a visitor, first Mm -hmm. time I ever met him, almost 20 years ago. And he was kind enough to let me hang out with him for a day. And we were going around doing his chores. And we were in one of his barns with a sick animal. And he was talking about the challenges of livestock and of farming. And he said, you know, we've got this idea that love is a feeling. He said, love is not a feeling. Love is a practice. And so my first notion about practicing a politics of love is that, first of all, we have to reskill ourselves. A lot of us are shouting at each other from very different poles. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe that one side is shouting a lot more than the other. But regardless, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of shouting going from both sides. Almost the vast majority of us, wherever we stand, we've given up a lot of skills over the last 20, 30, well, 50 years. And so again, whether it's raising food, cooking it, preparing it, whether it's repairing the things in your garage or your barn, uh, whether it's accounting for more of your own energy, we've simply ceded a lot of that to whom? Well, to businesses. Now, if we ceded that all of those functions primarily to small, local, community-based enterprises and businesses, it'd be one thing. Mm-hmm. But the fact is we've ceded it primarily to corporations that don't reside in our community, that, that return very little economic value besides a series of jobs. So the first part of practicing a politics of love is we need to reskill ourselves at the household level and at the community level to insulate against this uh, growing problem of, of economic decline. We simply need to be more productive while also being more frugal at those two levels, the personal household and community. I think that as we regain some of those skills, a couple of things will happen. One is we'll start interacting with each other in meaningful and constructive ways again. Right now, we kind of live, we're in this supposedly networked, linked world, and yet we're increasingly Isolated and disconnected. We're we're increasingly autonomous. We carry on our business, our affairs. There's all these studies about how people are so much more willing to be nasty through email than they are in person. So what if the economic necessities and the new economic ideas required us to be more engaged 
in the physical place of our communities, most of us. And I'm not talking about all of us working on farms. I'm just saying in many, many ways, doing things and buying and just that whole spectrum of production and commerce, if we regenerated that in small towns to big cities, we'd start to see each other more. We'd be a little more human towards each other. And then thirdly, I think the, the politics, this idea of, of politics of love is that even with all that going on, there's still going to be some hateful, nasty, wrong-headed ideas out there. <laughs> and of course, it's a judgment as to what's a hateful, nasty, wrong-headed idea. We need to have that sort of deep Gandhian, Martin Luther King, some might even say Christian love that is willing to confront that, confront it head on. But here's the piece that's missing in the religious rights confrontation, what they think mm -hmm. is wrong with the world, confront it in humility with the knowledge that we never quite know everything that as smart as we think we may be in as much research and websites as we visit, we're going to get some things wrong. So what if we confronted one another but confronted it with a basis that we relate to each other at local communities and, and need each other, and then we do it with honesty rather than political correctness but with humility that goes along with the fact that we just don't know it all and sometimes other people are right. That's what's lacking right now. And again, I think much more from one side to the other. But the, the truth is there just is not humility in this debate. It's all or nothing. It's I know this and you're an idiot if you don't get it. And that's just not getting us anywhere. Mm -hmm. What about um, the, the idea of, um, is in a sense, a new way of being human? thinking, uh, you mentioned Wendell Berry, there's another Berry, Thomas Berry, yeah. who you also quoted, and, and he talked about what, what's the meaning of life. Well, we um, take as many natural resources as we can, process them as quickly as we can through a consumer economy, and then onto the trash heap that we call progress. Right, right. And that we are identified uh, as consumers. Right, right. And uh, that's, that's our fundamental role. Right. And so what we're talking about here, in a sense, is having a whole new understanding of what it means to be a human being. Right. Part of that politics of love, part of that politics of being local, part of it being um, local economies, local ecology, care for the earth, care for the home. Right, right. And, um, and, you're, and you're finding this. How, how do you see this happening just real, very locally in some of the things that have been happening in, uh, say, southwest Virginia or east Tennessee? What are some success stories that you've seen? Well, you've had this rise of farmers markets, and that's a national phenomenon, but we got involved with that about 10 years ago, and the number of farmers markets in East Tennessee and Southwest Virginia has approximately tripled in the last decade. The size and scope and breadth of product uh, and quality at many of those markets, particularly the ones that uh, didn't just arise in the last year or two, has also grown dramatically. So you have many more farmers markets, and many of those have more vendors, more farmers, more quality, more sustainable and organically produced things, as well as just a great breadth of things. That has created, besides good market opportunities for farmers that really needed that, um, it has created um, opportunities for the community to eat better, Again, not all local food is by definition better for you, but there's a, a lot of it that is. The grass-finished meats, the free-range poultry and eggs, uh, the cheeses, the produce, etc. Most fundamentally, it's created these civic spaces where people are coming together from little tiny towns like uh, Duffield, Virginia, which had its first farmer's market this year, quite successful, to St. Paul, up to medium-sized towns like Abingdon, Bristol, Johnson City, Kingsport. And what's happening there is a real mixing of people. I'm speaking with Anthony Flacavento, and I want to thank you for being here. Tell me about if folks wanted to get in contact with you, community leaders, uh, uh, to start to make 
uh, some of these changes in their own communities, how would they go about that? What's the first step? So I have a website, and it is www.ruralscale.com. Rural, as in urban rural, ruralscale.com. Uh, so that would be the first step. I also would be perfectly happy for people to call me, um, and my local number is 276-628-4727. Okay. Thank you very much for being with us today. Appreciate Thank that. you. And you've been listening to Religion for Life, the intersection of religion and public life and the intersection of religion and social justice. My guest was Anthony Flacavento. This uh, production is a co-production of WETS-FM Johnson City and WEHC-FM Emory, Virginia. My name is John Shuck. I'm the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethan, Tennessee, fpcelizabethan.org. You can go there to get podcasts. You can also find more information about the radio program at my blog, shuckandjive.org. And if you have, uh, and you can contact me at johnashuck at embarkmail.com. Be well.